Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. I hope you're enjoying this free audiobook. If you're just tuning in, you'll probably feel a little lost in the story unless you start at the beginning and listen through chronologically. If you're all caught up, good for you. Feel free to leave a comment or review or tell your friends about this dope new podcast you found that's both spiritually profound and sexy as fuck. Or whatever you want to say. Okay, now I've done my authorly duty with disclaimers and announcements, so let's jump right in. Lifegasm, book one, Marshall's Promise. Chapter 16, Jingle Bells. Wow, what a strange and amazing thing I am. What a bizarre living being I am. Life. I am life. I am a sea of water poured inside this membranous pouch. Here, in this form, I am a conscious mind, and this body is the vehicle through which I am alive. Jill Bolte Taylor, PhD, from My Stroke of Insight. In Poughkeepsie, I let myself mourn. I'd just ended a relationship with a man who'd flown me across the country to be with him, who was comfortable, at least in his own way, with loving me, and who would always be the first to have tied me up. Things were not turning out as I'd planned or expected. Of course, one of the many things Marshall's death taught me was that life usually doesn't turn out as expected. Nobody who gets hit by a bus wakes up thinking, I'll probably get hit by a bus today. There's a Buddhist saying, Obstacles aren't in the path. Obstacles are the path. This breakup was an obstacle, but it was also my path. And it was markedly less severe than getting hit by a bus, so I had that going for me. Here, I chose to see an opportunity to avoid telling the if-it-were-different story. Of course, I was free to tell myself that everything was fucked, that I would never meet another life partner, that men were scum— that I was a homeless divorcee with no marketable skills, but I was just as free to tell myself that the Little Jack experience was exactly the right thing at exactly the right time, and that I was perfectly whole without a romantic partner. Craving a lover's company didn't negate this truth, I reminded myself, so I just kept swimming. I called Jingle Bells and told him the news. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that, Evie, he said. Yeah, whatever, I teased. No, you're not. I knew JB kept something of a home base in Boise, and if my life ever took me back to Oregon, I trusted we'd find a way to overlap in the extended Pacific Northwest. But that was the future, and this was the present. When are you free? When can we see each other again? I asked. He checked his calendar. Okay, so I'm actually available this weekend, but not again after that for months and months. I'm coaching my daughter's softball team, and they have a boatload of away games. Hmm. It was looking like we would have to work quickly. Within an hour, after confirming with Madeline that she was comfortable with hosting another one of my plus ones, Jingle Bells had his ticket booked. I would pick him up at the Newark airport in a borrowed car and bring him upstate for the following two days. Then I'd return him to the airport and he'd fly away. (laughs) Fucking crazy, right? The night before picking up JB, I made a sign to hold at the airport, limo driver style. On it, I'd painted two Christmas bells, and I hoped to high heaven it would make him laugh. I felt like I had something to prove comedically. Earlier that day, he'd sent an eight-second video of himself. The setting? An uninhabited country road. The action? Jingle bells, now whistling out of view, 
now walking into the frame, fully naked except for boots, still whistling, arms swinging, now marching happily down the road, and finally exiting camera left. I laughed so hard, I watched it again. Then again. (laughs) Then I asked him permission to share it with my people, which he granted. Per their reports, they watched it repeatedly and died laughing too. Well, this shit is crazy, I said as I painted a ribbon around the bells. Yeah, Madeline said, smiling, but you're kind of crazy. At the airport in New Jersey, the vague concern that I wouldn't recognize Jingle Bells disappeared as soon as I saw his head protruding above the heads of the normal-sized people. We gave each other a hug and a tentative kiss, then proceeded to gab the whole way home. His childlike curiosity about the world, which I'd probably noticed tangentially the first time around, was so apparent this time that I was inspired to renew my own sense of wonder. What's that? He'd ask, of almost everything. Rivers, stadiums, crowds of people, old buildings. Unless what he was asking about was the Hudson, I really had no clue. And even then, it wasn't a guarantee. Perhaps you should know this about me. Geography and names and places in general, is not my forte. I've struggled with this. Should I just stop telling myself I'm shit at geography and then I'll stop being shit at geography, I've wondered? And the truth is, sure, sure, I could be less shit at geography. But it's not my primary calling, and I'm comfortable not being good at everything, including humble bragging. (laughs) When we arrived at Madeline's, JB made such a fine first impression that it felt like the universe delivering another memo. See, this is what it feels like to be around someone who fits you better. After he introduced himself to the crew and brought in his bags, he immediately dove into a close examination of the artwork and pictures adorning the walls. As a zealous adventurer herself, Madeline had copious photos of her journeys hung throughout her house, many of which I now realized I'd never looked at closely. Where was this taken? Jingle Bells asked. He followed up with some assessment about it looking like a certain place. Alaska, maybe? But that some feature of it, the ice? Honestly, I'm not good at this stuff. Uh, Seemed to indicate that it was from elsewhere. Madeline was immediately impressed. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed that before, she said. But you're right. It is from mm, some name of some place I don't remember. It was on. Jingle Bells and I hit up the grocery store so we could contribute to the community stash of nourishment. The shopping trip was so lively and collaborative, it was impossible not to compare it to my last shopping trip. Later, when we made dinner for the village, we laughed and drank wine and worked together to assemble a massive feast. Jingle Bells didn't disappear in the middle of a group gathering for a smoke break, and he didn't withdraw from the group's conversation. I was proud that he was my new friend and interested to test the waters of our potential romantic compatibility. It had been established from the get-go that Jingle Bells and I would be sharing a room. He was comfortable with this, and so was I. You may remember I never do anything with my body that I don't want to do, and I trusted he was mature enough to sleep alongside me even if we chose not to have sex. Maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't. The tension was tantalizing. When we retired to our chambers later that night, JB pulled out a gift he'd bought for me. This was really thought-provoking, and it made me think of you, he said. So, whatever it was, I loved it already. It turned out to be a book called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis about the work and friendship of two insanely smart Israeli psychologists. 
the book examined the duo's willingness to ask questions right down to the very foundation of what they'd known to be true, including the assumption that standard economic theory is built upon. That is, the assumption that humans are rational creatures. Needless to say, I did love it. It was between that and Sex at Dawn, he confessed as I unwrapped the book, and the other one seemed a little too presumptuous. Aha! There was that Sex at Dawn reference again. Two notes resonating. I made another mental note to get a copy. Jingle Bells and I readied ourselves for bed, tucked in, and discovered immediately that we did, in fact, want to do it. And so we did. And it was not awesome. He wasn't one of those universally terrible lovers who didn't show interest in my pleasure. We just didn't dance well together. We weren't the right ingredients for the same pot. Jingle Bells and I tried having sex one more time the next night, just to be sure. It was like running an experiment twice. Maybe the first round was a fluke. But it wasn't. A fluke, that is. Our sexual incompatibility was undeniable. We agreed that we weren't well-matched lovers and accepted love in the shape it wanted to take. What shape was that? Well, it would have been inaccurate to call Jingle Bells my lover, but calling him my friend felt too incomplete a title. What else was there, linguistically? There was no good label to slap on our relationship, because we modern, Western humans have fallen short of acknowledging that love comes in forms more varied and nuanced than romantic, platonic, or familial. But I wasn't going to let the lack of available labeling become a thorn in my side. The love itself wasn't problematic, unwilling as it was to tuck neatly into a prefabricated societal box. I decided to think of Jingle Bells as a consummated ally. And I still do, even now. We spent the rest of the weekend engaging in hilarious, articulate, informed discussions about everything with Madeline and the village. We visited her classroom and got introduced to her reptiles. There was Houdini, the ball python, Milkshake the milk snake. E.T., the red-eared slider turtle, and Frogzilla, the African clawed frog. We explored the area, from the Paget's backyard to the Vassar campus to the extended Hudson River Valley. As an engineer, Jingle Bells was overcome by the superlative height of the walkway over the Hudson. He was almost delirious. Wow, he said over and over and over again, with the sheer astonishment that is usually heard out of the mouths of children. Do you understand how much work it takes to build something this tall, he said? I mean, we never build anything like this anymore. I mean, wow, it's so high. Wow, Evie, look how high we are. The walkway over the Hudson was built in 1889 as a railroad bridge, destroyed by fire in the 1970s and revitalized as a pedestrian bridge in 2009. On a dreadfully cold winter morning in the year of its revitalized opening, the Pagets took us for a walk over the bridge. I clearly remember how many layers I had to put on my new baby to keep him warm, but I didn't at all remember how high off the ground the bridge was. Not until Jingle Bells brought my attention to it anyway. The days passed, as days do, and before we knew it, it was time for my new ally to fly away. I borrowed another car, drove him to the airport, thanked him for coming to see me, like a crazy person, hugged him goodbye, and left. Wow, I reflected profoundly life. <laughs> As I drove up through New Jersey to New York and over the Mid-Hudson Bridge, I looked upriver at the walkway over the Hudson. It really was a stunning sight, and this from a person who's lived in Yosemite. 
Thanks, Jingle Bells, I told him through the ether. I don't think I'll ever be able to look at that thing again without feeling your wonderment in my own heart. As I settled back into my borrowed space in Madeline's house, single and whole and grateful for every rapid in the river, I was increasingly aware of the generosity being bestowed upon me by living rent-free. Madeline felt more like family than many of my genetically related relatives. I wouldn't have asked just any old acquaintance to save me from a floundering relationship and to host my new friend immediately thereafter and to house me for the remainder of the month. I only asked these things of her because it felt okay in my heart to do so. Still, though, I wanted to be sensitive to Madeline's needs and space, and so I started doing some digging on the goings-on about town in Manhattan. I was a train ride away from New York City, and I figured I could blow this popsicle stand for a few days, enjoy a world-class urban adventure, and provide my hostess with a brief respite from sheltering me. In a city that never sleeps, it seems less fruitful to ask, what should I do, than what should I not do? So I decided I wasn't going to spend my diminishing pile of money on big-budget musical theater. I wasn't going to take myself out to expensive restaurants. I wasn't going to visit the neighborhoods with a high density of tourists. What can I do in the city that I can't do anywhere else, I wondered. Sex club, my deepest heart said. At least, it sure felt like my deepest heart's voice. But was it? I mean... Is a deepest heart even allowed to want that? Here's what I was thinking. I was 36 for crying out loud, but I'd only consciously been exploring my body's needs and abilities for a few months. Little Jack had mentioned a few kinky parties he'd been to and had alluded to going to a sex club together, but as you know, that's not how those particular chips had fallen. Still, I was aware of the existence of sex clubs, not through gossip or pulp fiction or Stanley Kubrick films, but through a lover in the flesh. He'd planted the seed, and its unconventional flower was apparently well adapted to blossom in the exact conditions I was currently living. My dating life had provided a plethora of new data points, all indicating that the boundaries of pleasure lay much farther out on the horizon than I'd ever thought possible. In fact, every time I thought I'd established a designated parameter, I'd been proven wrong. The possibilities of pleasure, and joy, were always bigger. And while I was grateful for those ever-expanding data points, I felt deeply compelled to set sail directly into that burgeoning horizon. I know, I use that word a lot, burgeoning. It's pretty, right? I wanted to do something that scared me. Wim Hof scares me in the same way. I'm agitated by seeing photos of that man calmly immersed in Arctic pools or sitting quietly, half-naked, on a mountain of snow. Of course, he's not coming at me with a weapon. I don't have anything to genuinely fear. What, I wondered, am I really afraid of? Then, of course, I get to reflect on my own fear of being cold or uncomfortable, and I get to ask myself if that is a fear that I should continue to harbor. So far, I haven't had the chutzpah to partake in one of his polar bear swims, but I have taken the imperative first step of shining a spotlight on my own unconscious assumptions about it. Now I was shining a spotlight on my fear within the realm of sexual pleasure. Maybe I'd sign up for the polar bear swim next time around. This time, I wanted to see what it felt like to be at a sex club. I googled sex clubs in Manhattan and found notably fewer than I had expected. There were plenty of lingerie stores and adult toy shops, but the venues for the actual activity were reduced to a handful. 
This seemed like such a glaring cultural inconsistency for America. On one hand, we are regularly exposed to the allusion to sex. See most every ad for most any product. Which makes it seem like we, as Americans, are open-minded about healthy, adult, consensual intercourse. On the other hand, when you search for an actual physical place in which to have healthy, adult, consensual intercourse, the limited resources, even in New York, make it seem like we, as Americans, would rather you keep your sexuality to yourself. The unspoken message is that sex is okay if you're using it to sell something, but it's not okay if you just want to do it. Does this seem entirely backward to anyone else? Capitalism really does have us all standing on our heads. In the end, I decided to go to the sex club in Midtown, not far from Grand Central Station, where the Metro North Line arrives. I checked the train schedule. If I took the last train out of Poughkeepsie, I'd get to the city around 11 p.m. Perfect timing, I thought. Divine timing, my deepest heart corrected. Oh my god, but I thought nervously, am I really going to do this? I don't know, said my deepest heart. You tell me. Fuck it, let's go. The rest of the afternoon, I spent preparing both mentally and physically. After noticing that my footwear was limited to sparkly Chuck Taylors, winter boots, and some running shoes, I hustled over to a discount store a few miles away and bought a pair of heels. I called the club ahead of time, as they suggest you do, to get approved or whatever. I took a long bath, making a ritual of getting smooth and clean. Then I pulled out some of the sexy little bits I'd bought to wear for Little Jack, but never had the chance to, and strategized. I wasn't sure about dressing rooms at the club, so I would arrive in layers. I put on fishnets and a lacy teddy bodysuit. I was about to put on street clothes over the lingerie, but realized that I wanted to show off a little. I snapped a few timed selfies, edited them to look like old-timey boudoir pics, then sent them to Harriet Jean and Chloe. Here I go to my first sex club, I added, by way of caption. And that's when I found out that Chloe's number had changed. The new owner of the number wrote back, Well, I think you have the wrong number, but I hope you have a great time tonight. Egad! I could have fretted, but what would that have accomplished? I laughed instead. Life was too funny. I resent the pic to the correct parties, along with the details of my plans, and both of my goddesses sent me love and support. You look great, said one. You're gonna rock this. Can't wait to hear all about it, said the other. Okay, I confirmed. I got this. I look great. I feel great. I got this. I was scared, but I wasn't gonna let that stop me. Madeline called up to my room to ask if I wanted dinner, but I politely declined. Eating just didn't seem like the right thing to do. I pulled on a pair of stretchy black slacks, if you didn't know better, you might call them leggings, and a fitted black shirt. Holy shit, I thought, no one knows what I'm wearing underneath. Then it immediately occurred to me that nobody ever knows what anybody is wearing underneath. Like, Mitch McConnell could be wearing, like, lacy thongs and stuff. (laughs) I wondered how many people were romping around in hidden lingerie at any given moment. Teddies and trauma, I thought, just a few of humanity's easily concealed secrets. The last item of business, packing my runaway bag. In addition to the usual and necessary fare the runaway bag was always required to carry, it was now being asked to fit my new shoes, I'd be wearing my sneakers on the train, and a lightweight, long-sleeved denim pullover. The zipper closure groaned a little, but ultimately complied. It was go time. I took a cab to the train station 
and disappeared into the night. <laughs> 